0: Thank you. Aubrey Arneson. I'm a DGC director and I'm delighted to welcome you back to the DGC podcast brought to you by the Directors Guild of Canada National Directors Division. We'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional Indigenous lands that we all live and gather on today. Although this event is online, we are all located on traditional ancestral Indigenous lands. We are grateful to the Indigenous peoples who have cared for these lands and waters for thousands of years. Many of us have come as settlers, immigrants, and newcomers in this generation and generations past. We also acknowledge those who came here forcibly, particularly as a result of the transatlantic slave trade. Therefore, we honour and pay tribute to the ancestors of African origin and descent. This episode brings together five up-and-coming directors whose films were selected to premiere at the 2022 Toronto International Film Festival, and were all nominated to the long list for the DGC's Jean-Marc Vallée Discovery Award. Kelly Fife Marshall, director of When Morning Comes, which focuses on a young Jamaican boy trying to process his mother's decision to send him to live in Canada. Sophie Jarvis, director of Until Branches Bend, starring Grace Glowicki as an Okanagan cannery worker who discovers an invasive insect contaminating her food. Anthony Shim, director of Rice Boy Sleeps, which won TIFF's Competitive Platform Prize, examines the growing rift between a South Korean mother and son in 1990s Canada. Ashley McKenzie, director of Queens of the King Dynasty, follows a neurodiverse teenager declared unfit to live independently as she develops a relationship with an international student from Shanghai who was assigned to oversee her. And Gail Maurice, director of Rosie uses her debut feature film to explore the fringes of 1980s Montreal through the eyes of an orphaned Indigenous girl. Their conversation is moderated by fellow filmmaker and chair of the DGC's National Director's Division, Zach Lepofsky. Please enjoy.
1: Couldn't be more excited to be talking with all you guys. Um, I thought we'd start at the origin, a lot of people haven't had the chance to see the films that you guys are making, only one of them I think's premiered so far, and I thought I'd just get a sense from each of you, maybe starting with you Kelly, what was that initial spark that made you think this is a story I want to tell? And also, was there, I'm always curious about this, was there an initial fear that came from that idea <laughs> of like, I want to do this, but oh, is that, you know, I'm just curious for each of you what that initial spark was.
2: Yeah, definitely. I, so I had a film that I'd written called uh, When Morning Comes. I mean, sorry, that I'd written called Summer of the Gun. And um, we had went for telefilm, telefilm talent to watch. And we received the, uh, the funding for it. But we realized that it was a big film and we couldn't do it on that budget. And so Two of my producers came up to me and begged me to do another, to write another film. And I was like, I'm not doing it. This is my first film. I don't care what you guys say. And then I had one of those moments in the shower and I was like, oh, I have another idea. And so, as a prequel to that film, one of the people, one of the characters in that film was Jamal and he was an immigrant. And I was like, I could tell his immigrant story, which would be semi autobiographical. Um, And so, him moving from Jamaica, I moved from England and what that's like, the moments before you move. We often talk about the stories of like, Once they get here, how do you move, how do you fit into society? But what what is the sacrifice in the moments before that? And so that birth when warning comes. Um, And I think what I was nervous about was, you know, Jamaica is the culture capital of the world. Um, And so I wanted, like, so often when we see Jamaica on TV, it's not authentic. The accents are terrible. All Jamaicans know when you're watching, you're like, ugh, this is terrible. And so for me, I just wanted to be as authentic as possible. And I knew that if I was telling this story, it had to be authentic and I, I couldn't shy away from that. And so that was something that I had to really think about and sit with.
1: Yeah, well, the film is an incredible love letter, love letter to Jamaica. It's really, it's, thank you, thank I haven't you, been there, but it feels like you have been. It's, it's a great film. Thank you. Um, and so over to you, Sophie, when, what was the initial spark of this idea? And did it strike any fear within you when, you, when, it, when it came? And tell people what the film is as well.
3: Oh, yeah, um, My film is called Until Branches Bend, and it, it premiered last night. Um, and it follows a woman who works in a fruit packing house, and she finds a bug that she thinks might be invasive. And when she tries to tell her boss about it, kind of gets swept under the rug. So I was inspired by this film because I grew up going to a place called Summerland in the interior of BC, which is where my mom grew up and where my grandparents lived. It's a really beautiful place, and it's very it feels very idyllic. It's got a lot of orchards. It's very... Um, community-minded, uh, small, but it has a lot of different people living there. And uh, I guess I just wanted to know what could go wrong there. <laughs> um, so I'd say there's a lot of fear. I think there's a lot of fear in making a first feature in general. It, it's There's a lot of stakes. You know, you know, I've made quite a few short films and it feels sometimes like you're throwing spaghetti at a wall just learning how to make a film. I knew with this one uh, it would require a lot of research. There's a lot of world building that happened with the film, and so I spent a long time going to speak to farmers, going to speak to scientists, going to speak to the local First Nation there, and just understanding how this community worked and what their relationships were to each other. And I just wanted to honor it as a story that, um, there's no bad guys in this story. It's, it presents a situation that is plausible, and a lot of the people I spoke to said it was a very real situation. Uh, and it's just complex. So I guess through all the research that came through, I just wanted to make sure that I was honoring the reality
1: of what something like this could could be, without trying to point fingers at anyone. Yeah. Well, there's no bad guy, but it's still very thrilling, and you're on the edge of your seat. It's great. Over to you, Anthony. When this is your second film, seem very personal film. It seems like as well. When was the initial idea of like, okay, this is I, I've just finished the gauntlet of making my first film and through that experience, I want to tell this next story.
4: Well, I had always thought that if I did make a film, that it would be this one, that I wanted to make a film about my experiences growing up as a immigrant in, on Vancouver Island in the 90s. And, and then I, you know, I, I just like somehow just stumbled into making this other movie. As my first, um, it was kind of like an ac- an exercise that just went too far, and then I thought, okay, like now I'll make my film that I always wanted to make. I thought it was a great idea. You know, I- I'm sure a lot of people think, oh, my life, my childhood could be a movie, and I'm sure for a lot of people it is true. And-, and and I thought it was great until I started writing, and you start to wonder if this is the most egotistical, narcissistic thing that one could do as you work on your budget and it starts to inflate, and you try to justify it, you know, as you're working on writing a story about your own life. So the fear is, uh, it was real. Um, I think the fear. I, I, I mean, I'm not sure if the fear ever went away. Uh, we haven't. I didn't haven't, say it went away. I was yeah. just asking what it was. <laughs> I mean, we haven't premiered yet, so I don't know. Maybe everyone. I don't know, maybe it is actually the most narcissistic thing, <laughs> but.
1: Well, I think your point of view and your authenticity really came through in the in the film, so you don't have anything to worry about. But uh, over to you. I was curious, Ashley. Like your your film has such a unique tone, and and w- we're gonna dive into that. But where, what was the initial spark for it? Um, your second film as well, and uh, and what were you terrified to get into the meat on it with? Is that an expression? Get into the meat. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs>
5: well, it's uh Sometimes I refer to it as a queer friendship romance, um, but it's definitely a character piece that really, really digs into the specificity of the two characters. And it, the genesis of it began when I formed a friendship with um, a young teen that auditioned for my first feature, and it didn't work out to cast them in that film, but I really connected with her and was inspired by her and loved the way she saw the world, and I loved the way she spoke, And I think the moment maybe I knew it was gonna turn into something is I just couldn't get her, the way she said things and the way she thought, like I started to hear her voice in my head and uh, all the time and then started to write it down. And um, prior to that point, my films didn't really have many words, I guess. It was pretty stripped down aesthetic. And so all these words are coming on the page so that's when I knew it was something. And then the other character in the film also stemmed from a, a newer friendship that um, came into my life, I want to say, like a year and a half after I had a fully formed script. And then I sort of did probably spent another year writing it with them in mind. So, yeah, it was really just two friendships that I had with people that I thought were very beautiful, interesting people that... Um, yeah, I, I like to spend time with. Yeah. And the thing that scared me was um, was the words. Like, it was very dialogue heavy. And I think Werewolf, my first feature, was, I want to say, like, 68 pages. And then the script was, like, you know, 160 pages or something. So and I often work with um, people in my community who haven't acted before. Or maybe they might have some theater experience but have never acted in a film. So... You know, to throw non-actors or first-time actors into a scene with like a 16-page dialogue scene felt
1: very scary for me. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was really great, really. And her voice has been in my head ever since seeing the film. It's very captivating in that way. Over you, G- Gail, a uh, really amazing film. What was the initial moment that it came into your mind and was there anything that, that made you worried about taking that on? <laughs>
6: So um, I did the short Rosie in 2017, and it screened at Imaginative in 2018. So then uh, the Imaginative had that inaugural screenwriting program, and they invited me to develop it into a feature film. I thought, what the hell am I going to write about? Like, But these characters I loved very much, but I, I started to think about it. And so my film's Rosie, and... Rosie's a little six-year-old girl, indigenous, and she goes to, is forced to live with a francophone auntie. And everything that she's thrust into is alien. With the way that people sound, the culture, the signage, the way they look. A lot of my films have to do with identity and who are we and makes a family. So I was able to expand on that. And also I wanted to talk about the 60 Scoop because not a lot of people know about the 60 Scoop. And Rosie's mother, who Rosie's now orphaned, and her mother is a product of the 60s scoop. So I wanted to talk about the effects and repercussions of what happens when you take children away forcibly from their parents, where they will never have a chance to know who they are. Which, in in Rosie's case, will happen, and it it's happened a lot in in Canada. And that's from uh, personal experience. Uh, My uh, sorry. I don't know when I'm going to stop being emotional when I talk about it. But I have uh, two siblings that were forcibly taken from my mother's uh, breast when she, when they were born. And she didn't want to give them away. But the government and the doctors had so much power during that time. Even right up until like uh, a year ago, it happened in Winnipeg. But um, yeah, so it's, it's, um, it's just, I, I wanted to honor those fighters because... Um, they are fighters. They are survivors. But also, um, it's not. It's a. Jo- it's a joyous film because I wrote it in the '80s, and there's. Uh, 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 it's a soundtrack of '80s inspired 24 songs because that's when I came out. That's when I left my village and I came out in Saskatoon, and it's like when I opened that door um, to <laughs> the the first gay bar i have ever been in my life. It's like. It's like my whole world exploded, like, what the fuck? (laughs) And I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, so, like, I was like, what? And my whole body vibrated, and I was like, I was blown away that this world existed. And so I wanted to bring that energy into Rosie, and I wanted uh, uh, to tell a story from Rosie's perspective because children are so, um, they see things with wonder and magic. And there's, I'm talking a lot. (laughs) There's there's one uh, scene where um, she goes to the uh, garbage dump with uh, her auntie, and um, it's that's based on my life. So I used to my mom and would take me to the dump. But when you're six years old, you don't realize it's a dump and it's supposed to be dirty. To me, it was a magical place and it was wonderful. And I would I remember like climbing the heaps and piles of garbage, but it wasn't garbage, it was beauty, and I found a Santana record, and I didn't know what a record was, I didn't even, I didn't, I just saw this record, the, the, the picture on the, on the record, uh, and I looked inside, and there was this disc, I had no idea what it was, it was just beautiful, and we found that, or, an orange sh- shag rug, and we went home, I, I kept that record for years and years and years, and without ever hearing it, I should go home and play it, actually, and... Um, <laughs> But yeah, so we went home. We took this orange shag rug and we put it and we used it. And I I sat lovingly on that rug. To me, there's no. uh, The theme is there's no uh, trash in any human being. We're all beautiful.
1: One of the things that's really unique about everyone here, I was kind of shocked when I was going through, is every single one of you are a writer and director of the film. So you you all wrote it and directed it. And I'd love to just dive into the writing for a second, starting with you, Kelly. On the page as you're crafting this this film that you came up with in the shower, what was something that was really hard to crack on the page that eventually you did figure a way through? Was there something in particular that, as a writer, um, and you can all if someone else wants to go first, but I think that's it's always great because writing is so difficult. There's things that stump you, but you do get through it. I'm curious if there's something specific.
2: I think for me, it's like, uh, this is a story that I'm interested in and I want to tell, but would other people be interested in it? That's kind of my biggest thing is like, when you get in there, I'm, 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 more conf- I'm a confident director, but like when you're writing on the page, are people going to care about these stories that you think are really important?
1: Yeah. And how did you get through that, that thought? You just went, went I ahead? I think
2: I did. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll see on Monday at the screening.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're all sold out, so I think people want to see it. Um, How about uh, about you, Sophie? Was there something that you really struggled with on the page that eventually you cracked?
3: I mean, I just think that the script, I, I wrote the first draft in 2016, so it's just, I think it was just a struggle the whole way. And there's things that were visually really compelling to me that I just had to ground myself with those. I knew that there was certain images in the film and certain uh, scenarios with a visual attached that, to me, as long as those remained, I knew that that was where the magic was felt in my heart and finding the script to include those and finding what was in common with those was how it kind of helped me go through the six years of (laughs) reproduction. Five years. We shot last summer and... In fact, we were supposed to film in 2020, but um, something happened, so we had to push by a whole year. And that year was actually probably when the best writing happened, I'd say. We had a script that was ready to go in 2020, and just having the rug pulled out from under all of us in so many ways. I mean, this was the least of anyone's worries at the time, but I had a year to sort of have an objective look at the script again and, and really narrow in on what I wanted to say. And also being able to cast the actors a little earlier was great. The script went through a lot of changes once I knew who was playing the roles. And we were able to, I was able to see the characters more clearly and talk to the actors. And I just think that writing is bizarre for one person to be building a whole story and then to be expected to make a film where you're collaborating with hundreds of people. I just, I think in the future I'd want to be a more collaborative writer. Not to say I, I want to write with other people all the time, but I just feel like making a film is a more holistic process. And I think a big takeaway for me with this film was that I really like working with other people and respecting what they bring to the table as an artist. And I think especially with actors, um, there's so much there. They're building their characters with you. And I just think a script needs to be flexible in order to accommodate the magic that can come from working with other people.
1: Yeah, well, there's, when you're the writer and director, you can create that flexibility because you can say, ah, screw what I wrote, let's, uh, let's do this instead. How about you, uh, Anthony? Obviously you're writing about your childhood. Was there something specific, a scene or a beat or a sequence that was really particularly difficult to, to figure out the right way to craft on the page?
4: Well, originally when I first started talking about this film, the idea was that it'd be about this mother and son and then they decide to go back to Korea for the first time. That's how I pitched it to everyone. So they had to go to Korea. And so when I was writing it initially, the first couple of drafts, it just felt like they went to Korea because I already told people they were gonna go. <laughs> but, it would, it, but it clearly was not working. Because then it just became two different movies. And, and then I went, oh shit, like we gotta submit this to Telefilm next month. So then I wrote a draft where I was like, you know what, they haven't earned to go to Korea. So they just wanna stay in Vancouver and we're gonna work all this out here. And we're like, it's great, because now the shooting schedule's easier, and we don't, you know, we don't need to raise as much money. And I did it, and then we submitted to Telefilm, and then we did get the funds we asked for. And then after the fact, I went, I feel like something's really missing now in this story. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I wrote a draft where they went, and I was like, oh my god, this works. And so I remember, I, had to, I emailed, Lauren at Telefilm,
2: yeah.
4: and she knew I was still working on the script, and I said, hey, Lauren, you know, there's a new draft, you should look at it, and just note, like, page 60, they go to Korea now. <laughs> <laughs> Send. <laughs> she understood.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. That's a great journey. Um, and how about for you, Ashley? Was there uh, something particular in the you had these voices in your head of these characters, but was there when was there anything that was really difficult on the page to get right?
5: Definitely, really relate to what everyone said so far, and I feel like maybe yeah, the most difficult part of the writing was like knowing when to stop. Um, I I think I was I was in the last days of pre production, like maybe two days before we went to camera. I was still rewriting the script, which is like kind of a Chaotic thing to do and makes scheduling hard and it was like a it was hard for me to be trying to prep everything as a director and while I'm still like trying to adjust the script. But I don't know. I feel like the more you spend time in the writing process, everything in life just you know seeps into your script and you can just keep evolving and keep involving it. And it's like knowing when to stop was a bit like hard sure. for me to figure out. And then, similar to what Sophie's saying about being open to shifting things, that's something that I've always felt has been like important for my process on set. And so similarly, we're shooting, and you notice things that are working and things that aren't working. And on the fly, like I try to make space to rewrite things or reshoot things or recast things, just, you know, do what needs to be done to get at something authentic and something that feels right so I was also like every night like rewriting the scenes and polishing dialogue which again I, it's hard for everyone when the actors are like learning the lines and then you send them the new scene the morning of and that kind of thing yeah I you know maybe I think it maybe it was the best thing for the film but it definitely felt like it's it we're pushing the boundaries
1: a bit it's really good for people to hear that, I think, because most people see a finished film at a world premiere at TIFF and think that it, you were in the shower, you had the idea, and then that film was instantly created in that form, and it didn't change from the shower to TIFF. Um, but knowing, I'm sure all of you can relate, it changes every day along the process.
5: Yeah, I mean, I don't know if this is something that you've all experienced, but in the editing process, like the, it shifts so much for me. Like I think in my film, probably like in one, in one take... When the actors say a line, I probably like swapped out every single line to take a line from each take to get the perfect tone and the perfect yeah. performance sort of thing. Like all those little details it feels like are right up until the end you're massaging them.
1: Yeah. And for you, Gail, how was the, the writing process? And was there anything particularly difficult to, to, to get exactly right? And how did you get through it?
6: So it's taken me 20 years to make my first feature film. <laughs> Never give up. <clears throat> um, and I took uh, another feature film to telefilm, and uh, uh, just hearing the voices, and getting rid of the, the voices um, of the naysayers. So my, one feature I took that I wrote, uh, I think, my, the feedback I got is, why do, you ha- why do they have to be lesbians? Why, do they ha- why can't it just be about the mom and daughter? And it just, and no one read the script. And as script writers, I mean, that was devastating. And I almost quit the business um, because someone from Telefilm, who was a gatekeeper, told me that. So when I was writing Rosie, um, my biggest thing to get over was other people's chatter in my head. And to learn to write for myself, and uh, so I just, uh, if I was blocked, I would just crank up the '80s tunes like Depeche Mode, "My Own Personal Jesus," you know that. I just, I just cranked it and I played it over and over and over to get those, uh, get those voices like that didn't believe, you know. And so, and I, and I just thought, fuck it, you know. I, I it's like I'm gonna write my own. Way what I want to see on the screen. And so everything that you see in Rosie, that's just my heart on, on, uh, on the screen. And I just to, yeah I just had to say fuck it to everyone.
1: Yeah. So a lot of different things craft. You know, this is a filmmaking audience, so I want to get into craft. Tell me about just sort of the tone, the style, the craft for the whole film.
4: Well, most of the movie is all in one cut. I really didn't want to do that because I knew I would... And I didn't even wanna give myself that option because it'd be just torturous to be doing that for so long. And I've done it, and I have done it. So then, and it was supported by the story and the, and the style and the vision that my, me and my team had. And so we decided, you know, most of the scenes, I didn't want to cut, but then to have the camera move through the space and stay with the actors in real time so that the audience can experience the emotional journey of that scene. At the, at, the t- at the speed that the characters are experiencing it. So, you know, that's an example. Actually, there is one cut.
1: Yeah, there's one, uh, yeah, just at the end. At yeah. the very
4: end. Um, that's because we didn't get enough takes.
1: Because,
4: <laughs> um, yes, we did shoot on film, and for anyone who's shot on film, I, I know you did. Like, you have these monitors. If you're used to shooting digital, you get these. They're basically like iPads. They're so pristine, right? And then day one, we get these monitors for shooting on film, and it looks as grainy as anything. You you can't see faces, and then because we I was in that van that drove past, um, and because we were so far, like I couldn't really get audio either. And I was just getting I was just getting grainy picture and no audio, <laughs> and it and, and I knew it had to be in one take. So.
3: <laughs> and it was in a car.
4: Yeah, it was in a car. And I couldn't be in the car, and so we could only have the DP and the, uh, the sound person. And so it's like, I, I wish I could say, like, stylistically, we wanted to shoot it this way for these reasons and that reasons, But honestly, it was out of op- like, lack of options. <laughs> what can we afford? How much time do we have? Well, okay, well, if we put the camera in the car, then we don't have to pay for the thing that you rig, and you don't have to get yeah. the license for it. And, and okay, Well, that sounds like a good idea. Let's at least pick the lens. Let me have that option. <laughs> and you know, you do. And then we, you know, kind of figure out the timing of it. And then we did, I think we did like maybe four or five takes. And, you know, I, I'm as grumpy as any human being can be at that point because I'm like, what are we doing? Like, <laughs> we're just, just throwing things at the wall with our eyes closed. <laughs> Luckily, there was a take that worked. Yeah. Um, and then also the boy that, He's just the best. <laughs> like, if he wasn't as amazing as he was, the film wouldn't have worked. But luckily, he was able to just, like, give us the goods when the pressure was really on.
1: So, Ashley, your film has a tone sort of, like, that just really captured me from the beginning. Like, almost the whole film is... I don't know if the camera ever moves. It's always locked off. It had, Almost every shot is clean. I don't think there were any overs. Like, it, you have a very, very specific aesthetic you were going for, not just in where the camera was placed, but also with the lighting and the, and, the, and the actors that is just immaculately done through the whole film. Did you, when did that specific, you know, tone, did it come from the page or, or did it develop over time? And, and was that in collaboration with your other, you know, with the DP and stuff? But like, you kind of are, you're laser focused on this way of shooting the film and it comes across.
5: Yeah, there, I mean, there's a lot of things that led me there. One thing was the characters on the page felt vibrant and just different than what I had written before, and maybe I didn't realize that until we started to do my DP&I location scouting. We went into, like, a hospital room, and I remember um, putting a 50 mil lens on, and we were just scouting angles, and I think we had our producer... Um, sit down in the on a hospital bed and and just right away it was just felt too flat i was like no like these characters are not flat they're like dimensional and so i was like okay we're we're not going to put a 50 on the entire shoot so then i think we pretty much shot everything like um on 35 or 24 for like portraits for the medium close-ups kind of thing and we never shot straight on. Similarly, we would always shoot like three-quarter um, profile because it just, again, it felt like dimensionality was key. The film was just really an exploration and into that in so many ways. So it was just from location scouting and doing camera tests, it just felt like what the film needed. And, yeah, the t- and then it is all buried then imprinted throughout the entire film, and that maybe wasn't entirely intentional. We had, like, many scenes where we were going to do kind of like a walking and talking mode, and we're planning, we had a gimbal, and we're going to shoot a lot of the scenes like that, and um, the gimbal was broken that we bought. We didn't realize it at first we were just trying to shoot these scenes, and it was going terribly, and we didn't know why, And realized the gimbal was broken and I we live we live and make our films on an island in Amagi Cape Breton and there's no film industry there we had to order any equipment we have it's like we're working with what resources we have at that point like if we were to try to get something shipped to us it was just not going to work so again the film just sort of told us what we had to do they're like you're not moving the camera. (laughs) I don't know it's worked really well it's yeah having those limitations really affected things and just try to work with it
1: tell me about the um short sighting I'm a huge fan of short sighting you know where the the actors are sort of on the other side of the frame than you would expect them to be when they're talking to someone um where did that choice come from and how did that affect sort of the tone of the movie
5: I, I don't. I don't totally understand what you mean. Um, okay. <laughs> cross, you're not talking about crossing the axis.
1: No, just you're like not... usually when someone's in a in a shot talking to someone, there's a lot of empty space in front of them in the frame. And in oh, most yes. of your film, they're right up against the edge of the frame, they, and there's a lot of space behind them, or they're sort of framed in a really unique way that yeah. adds adds a lot to it.
5: Yeah, I mean, I felt like it always felt good for them to be center framed, and I didn't want to ever cut off their heads. I was just I'm interested in portraiture. I was just really interested in their faces and didn't want to um chop things up, although if you see the film, there's like a massive amount of extreme eyeball close ups. <laughs> yeah. so that's an exception. but um I always like to shoot with a lot of headroom, and I think that has to do with just the characters in my work are often the environment and society like affects their lives in in pretty tangible ways. And so I like to see characters existing within the architecture of a space so you can feel the room and you can feel the structures around them. So I, I, yeah, I sort of the film shot in like a one three seven aspect ratio. That's a bit more square and gives you more ceiling than uh, horizontal space, and that just felt right for capturing the characters in their environment. And,
6: yeah. that's
1: Yeah, it was, well, it all worked, it all came together. Um, and so, Gail's film, Rosie, talk about sort of developing that tone and and the craft.
6: Yeah, so I wanted to bring in saturation to make it vibrant, because I wanted the characters, nothing about the characters is conventional, they're unabashedly themselves, they let their bodies hang, and they're beautiful, and and strong and just just the way they are and I wanted to highlight that with the color. What's interesting is I don't speak French but I directed a bilingual film (laughs) and uh, and I wanted to do that to highlight my language Michif which is half Korean half French and to be able to talk about Michif which is there's only a little over a thousand speakers in the world and I'm one of them so I bring in my language a lot and I wanted to be able to speak about it but also, when we were cutting that, you don't see Rosie's face very much. And people always wanted to say, can you show Rosie's face? And, uh, yeah, so I, 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 I thought, no, <laughs> you know, we, we don't need to see Rosie's face in this moment. But another thing that was happening, is, it was uh, 40 degrees, and we had a lot of issues with heat exhaustion. Our lead actor, Fred, uh, actually ended up in emergency and she had to get hydrated and so we lost a day of shooting. It's just, these are just like the things that go on when you're, when you're shooting. And so this day, um, it, it was really, really hot. Uh, little Rosie was uh, yawning like crazy. <laughs> she was so, she was so, uh, it was so hot. You, you shoot um, basically sometimes because, in a certain way, because you have no other choice. And you, and you make do.
1: Absolutely. Well, the film really comes to life on the screen. So none of the, none of the heat trauma is, 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 is in there. Now we're going to go over to Kelly's film. Kelly, similar to what Anthony was talking about, your film has a lot of these incredibly crafted sort of moving camera angles, almost remind me of like early Spielberg and these sort of wonders that feel like five different shots, you know, that come together that are really beautiful. Um, talk about sort of the decision to kind of build that sort of style into the story you were telling.
2: Um, yeah, so that all started with a conversation with my DP, Jordan Orum. Um, We've worked together since one of my first uh, Shorts Haven, um, and he's also Jamaican. So it was super important for us to kind of talk about how we could make Jamaica feel the most authentic and make people feel like they're experiencing what Jamaica is. Um, and so one of the things we wanted to do was make the camera float through the scenes. So it was like, you know, it was it was your perspective of what was happening um, and so we didn't, we, we a lot, we, like you said, we have a lot of oners. Um We shot the film with one lens the whole time. So we shot it on a 29 uh, vintage lens. Um, the first day of shooting, um, we had it on a crane that ended up being faulty. And the whole camera fell off right after our second scene and broke. Um, after that was day one in Jamaica. And like you were saying, being on an island, and we, we brought all of our equipment from Canada. Um, and so I called my baby brother up and I was like, hey, what are you doing tomorrow? And he was like, oh, I have a Frisbee tournament. I was like, great, you don't. Um, I booked you a COVID test and you're getting on a flight. You you land tonight in uh, New York and then you'll be there tomorrow <laughs> with the lens. There was only one other. We It was a vintage lens. I don't remember what the lens was, but there was only one other in the world. And it happened to be in Toronto at that time. <laughs> and so we had someone drop it off at my brother's. He got his COVID test. He wrapped up. He wrapped it up in a shirt. So nobody thought it was film equipment, and he hopped on a flight, and the next day we all went to set like, you know, we were ready, and he came out, He came from the airport straight onto set, and we just cheered him on, put it on, and we were like, action, let's roll. Um, that is
1: amazing, amazing.
0: And incredible.
2: So, yeah, it was definitely a lot of hardships, the same with the heat, um, and and so, but one of the things we did that was super intentional we mostly focused on Jamal, the main character. Um, you rarely see, like, even the, the, um, the cameraman in this. He's a huge TikTok star with, like, one million followers, and you've never seen his face. Um, and so we did that quite often. I mean, they'll, they don't know, but they'll see when they see the movie. Um, because it really is, like, Jamal's perspective of what he's going through, and, and we want to really feel, like, like his feelings uh, and, and feel like we are Jamal and we're making the same decisions and to have the same feelings as him.
1: Yeah, well, it really came through, and I'm going to use 29 mil from now on. That's the way to do it. Now we're going to go over to Sophie's film, Until Branches Bend. Just like Anthony, who shot on 16, I guess. Um, What was the decision to use film and the aesthetic of what you're going for there with your film?
3: Um, Well, I just love working on film. I think that uh, not only do I think it has such a beautiful texture, and it picks up uh, colors and brings an atmosphere that... Um, I find really compelling. Um, I also just love the energy on set when we're shooting on film. I feel like a lot of people, it just it just brings a certain reverence. Like there's a performance really gets centered. There's less focus on de- details that don't really matter. Like, can you see this logo? Or, I mean, it matters. You got to <laughs> cover those things up. But it's, it's more about does the world feel right? Because like you said, when you look at the monitor, you can't tell what the hell is going on in there. And um, I worked on 16 for my last short film and I just really loved the texture of it. And and especially with where we were shooting here, there's a lot of, um, it just felt like the right choice, the colors, the landscape. Uh, With this scene here, I'd say that my approach to filming is pretty formal. I really love to visualize the shots beforehand and to know where we're going to be filming and... Uh, to really spend time thinking about that space. And actually with this scene, it took us a really long time to find a factory that would let us film because it's about finding a bug in a factory and no one wanted that. Um, But we found someone like a week before we could go in there, but we were already filming. So we really had very little understanding of what the space was like. And also the factory was running while we were there. So we were filming while people were working Um, so I would say that this was a big panic day for me because we, we knew what we had to get, but we had no idea what our framing was going to be. It was very much like grab the cameras and go. And luckily one of our producers, Tyler, he also is a really great DP and we had a second camera on set. So while we were filming the scenes and we only had one day, we only had a half day to shoot in the factory. Uh, Tyler was running around getting B-roll. He was up on the loft getting that big wide shot while we were filming the actors. And when you see the film, it's not a spoiler, but the opening has a lot of peach in the factory amb- ambiance. <laughs> yeah. And that was just a kind of a run and gun while we were trying to get as much as we could out of this factory with people actually working there. And I'd say that I'm really pleased with how it turned out because it felt like the most unknown. It was so loud in there. We had no idea if the sound was going to be any good. It was really stressful. Um, but it was just such a great experience in the end. And a lot of people who were working in the factory were really excited about the film and actually came out and were in were background on another day that we were filming. Uh, they came all the way out to a different town to to participate because they wanted to. And that was really something that we couldn't have imagined happening unless we had gone into this
1: space. And it was great. Yeah, yeah. well, you couldn't tell that, I mean, there's one of the, the shots in there, the long lens where half the frame is black and she, almost like she's being watched. All that seemed very chosen. So you couldn't tell, so well done. Thank so you. we're um, we're coming near the end of our time, but I want to uh, kind of get a sense from all of you. Um, you know, for most of you, this is your first film, for some of you, is your second film. Um, going through this experience, you know, every filmmaker makes shorts and gets all their favors together and and then makes a feature. Now that you're coming, you know, you're still going to have the premieres and all that part, but through the process of making it, shooting it, casting it, editing it, what are some of the biggest uh, lessons that you personally learned making the film that where you're going to carry on to your next films and or you wished you could have gone back and <laughs> told yourself uh, at the beginning of the process. I think it's always really helpful for all the filmmakers that are here to just hear the wisdom of things that you learned uh, through the process of doing it that you're never going to forget. Um, maybe starting with you, Kelly, if you, if you have one.
2: Yeah, I think... For me, it's just really just keep going. It's the energy of just to keep going. Like, the fact that the camera fell on the first day is like do we just stop and go home? Like, is this the end of all we've done here? You know? Um, and it, we were like, it was the end of the, th- th- like the third wave of the pandemic and we're in Jamaica. Um, and it could have easily just been the end. And, but we'd try, we'd all worked so hard and gotten to this place and we were finally there and the characters were great and the costumes and everything was perfect. Um, and we had shot the day. It was just like a last walking scene. And so um, it's, it's just like, you just really have to keep going and, and just be agile and know, like, you you got to just ha- learn how to navigate when things go wrong and, and just stick true to what your vision is.
1: Awesome. How about you, Sophie? What was the big lesson that you took out of this experience?
3: I'm trying to think of just one. <laughs> There's so many.
1: List them all. Let's do it.
3: Wow. Well, I mean, I really relate to what you're saying. And I'd also say moving forward at all costs, but with compassion. You know, we had a tough shoot, too. We were shooting during COVID, um, wildfire season extreme heat um, and I just really commend the producers on the film for being mindful of the elements and doing their best to provide, especially with an indie budget, the resources to give people what they needed in order to do the work and also to listen when people were having a hard time as well. Like we we did a lot to make sure that everyone was safe and, and cared for, I think to the best of our abilities um, and I felt really supported by the producers because I knew that they had that caring nature so I was able to focus on on getting through the days and actually to enjoy it as well. Like At the end of the day I show up every, every day to the film set and there's all these people who either I've worked with for many years before people who are new friends, people who I've never met before but who are suddenly there in the experience and I just think that moving forward I need to remember that when we're actually filming it's just such a privilege and a joy to be able to direct a film and to experience that type of support every single day. And to know that it's not just in the filming, it's also all in the development, the pre-production, and and also through post. and, And to remember that a film gets made several times, like the script is a document in the end, and when you're filming it changes, and when you're editing it's unrecognizable, for me anyways. And that's part of it and i think that just remaining flexible but still true to your vision as you said is just for me is the way that i need to work moving forward i mean i hope i did so here but i think i'm extremely into that moving forward
1: yeah every every film i've made i end it regretting not having been present for like and appreciating because you're so in it and every film i start i'm like okay this time i'm going to be present and appreciate it and then you just go into this black void and you it's very difficult to do that. But Anthony, this is your second film. I'm curious, was there a lesson you took from film number one into this one? And I'm sure there was another lesson you learned at the end of this one. What were they?
4: Well, I I remember talking about this um, to my team leading into the shoot. I said, you know, if I have one regret for my first film, it would be that I wish I had imposed my vision more because I I was at the mercy of all my friends and all these people coming out to work on this project out of passion and out of, you know, wanting to support me. And so, I, you know, you want to do certain things and the, certain people don't want to do it because it's difficult. And then there's that part of your, myself that goes, oh, well, I don't want to, person's helping me out. I don't want to make this person's life difficult. So then you just, you know, you kind of try to appease at times. And then after it was all said and done, I just went like, I mean, why do I care if that person was grumpy that day? Like, it's my movie. And I got to live with my regret of what's on screen forever now. And so I thought, you know, like, I really got to stick to my guns and be bold and be sure about it. And then the lesson I learned, too, was that I think if you make bold choices, you're going to have people that push back for financial reasons, scheduling reasons, logistical reasons, whatever it may be. And it's easy to take that as people being combative to you or people trying to get in the way of your masterpiece that's in your mind. But then, you know, the realization after a while was that they don't see everything that I see. They don't know the whole picture. They have their job and they have their responsibility. And, and, you know, if they push back, it's because they have concerns that I don't know about. And so it's, it's just remembering that, okay, like, this person isn't my enemy. <laughs> Still my friends. Yeah, They just don't see what I'm seeing. And I just have to be better at communicating or just ask them to trust. Like it will reveal itself. I do know what I'm talking about. Yeah.
1: No, that's, I've can definitely relate. I'm sure every filmmaker here can relate with that for sure. Luckily I have a co-director who's much better at telling people, uh, I don't care. We're doing it <laughs> than I am. Um, but yeah, let's uh, go over to you, uh, Ashley, and um, what were some big lessons? This was your second film as well. Was there anything you carried from film one into film two and anything you'll carry into film three?
5: I think maybe, yeah, the thing I'm learning and trying to sit with right now is making films is so demanding and, and it just takes there's something very beautiful about the devotion and the faith that we put into the creative projects. And, and I love that. And that's yeah really exciting. Um, that tenacity, I think, but it also, I don't want to like be myopic about it and, and forget and think that film is everything. Like I'm trying to remind myself now that there's more to life than film and trying to find balance and, and trying to remember you know there's so much pressure to like what's the third film what's the script in your back pocket and just remembering that you know what do you know what do I want my life to look like yeah, and what do I want my days to be like and uh, you know not being afraid to take time to just be in the world and do other things and and hopefully that will actually in the long run actually nourish the work even more but it can be really hard to resist the pressure like you know, you have this energy and momentum and it's just, you think if you don't just keep producing that it's all going to go away or something, but Definitely, yeah. if you, I don't know, that's what I'm trying to learn and, and talk about so that I can hopefully try to follow through on I
1: some think of that those balance, changes. Yeah, that balance is an artist's lifelong struggle, I think, for sure. How about you, Gail? Was, um, this was 20 years in the making and now that it's coming to the moment of seeing it, was there any big lesson you took from that experience?
6: Um, I, uh, my next, uh, project, I want to be surrounded by, uh, people that respect each other and, um, yeah, it's one of the hardest things I've ever done. I basically went home and cried every night because like you say, um, I had to fight for every shot, every scene, every, it, it, it it was hard. Um, so my next, uh, my next project, I hope that I'm uh, I I choose people that um, I I that are collaborators that are that are that have kind hearts that are, um, you know. Kindness and respect goes a long way, yep. and I think if um, there's more of that in the world and on set, like if you, if you just understand each other, if if you just listen to each other and communicate um it's it doesn't have to be so difficult like I didn't have to go home every night and cry you know and talk to the ancestors and ask for strength you know this was this was supposed to be like I was telling my partner Melanie Bray who's also a Fred and my co-producer oh my god um you know, it was uh, it was our dream to make Rosie, and it was supposed to be beautiful, and it was supposed to be joyous, and was supposed to, we thought we at the end of every day we'd be hugging and saying high five, you know. But no, it wasn't it wasn't like that. And um, I want my next project to be like that, hopefully, and also to um, um, bring on. So Rosie, we had a lot of uh, indigenous. Uh, as much as possible and mentees and stuff and I'd like to I'd like to um work with more indigenous people and people of color and yeah yeah, I just I just want it
1: (laughs) (laughs) well uh you have an amazing stage here at TIFF all these films are playing in the next uh, few days um try and check them out if you can they're amazing I'm sure they'll be at festivals across the country if you have friends and family across the country as well Thank you so much for coming and sharing all of your amazing wisdom.
0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I find it so inspiring to hear so many different voices in one conversation. I think that there were so many gems in that chat, but the things that stand out for me is hearing them talk about how you have the script, but to remember that the story and the film evolved through all the stages and to allow it to do so. they were talking about changing the script, writing it while you're shooting and how that can kind of be disarming for people on set sometimes. But if the story is changing or you're seeing things that you need to change, you got to go with it. The film is made, not just with the script. It is made on set. It is made in the edit. And that was inspiring for me. Um, And I loved hearing that sometimes it takes... 20 years to make your first feature film. And that's okay. Uh, You know, you don't give up and you keep going because it's hard. It's really inspiring to hear that people are completing that. And I have films I want to make, and I think people out there probably do too. So don't give up. Sometimes it takes a while to make your first feature film, and it's always worth it. And the other thing I loved to hear was that you need to move forward at all costs, but with compassion. And I thought, like, what a great mantra for a director, for filmmakers. That's exactly what you have to do. You have to keep pushing forward. You have to keep making the movie. You have to keep going no matter what happens. And so much happens, but remember to do it with compassion. Thank you so much, Zach, and all the filmmakers for sharing all of your talent and all of your insight with us. And thank you out there for joining us for this great chat. Remember to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at DGC Talent on Instagram and Facebook. And if you are looking to hire a director, you can access an amazing resource directors.ca, where you'll find a director with the perfect skill set to match your project. Special thanks to technical producer Giacomo Beltrami and producer Hans Engel. Take care and talk soon on the next episode.